Hello, and welcome to the Murderosity Podcast, where we discuss all things murder, mayhem, the mysterious, and the macabre. I'm your co-host, Bob Hancock, joined on the other side by the rambunctious Rebel Roan. Rebel, how are you doing this week? I'm good. How are you? I am most excellent. This is a case that you and I have discussed, and I've been waiting for this one for quite a while. I'm going to go ahead and give a trigger warning for anyone that might be sensitive to deaths of children or anything including sexual assault. Just a heads up, we will be dealing with that. Listener discretion is advised. Rebel, why don't you take it away? All right. Our next case takes place in Portland, Maine and Bellevue, Nebraska in the early 80s. So you said we're taking place in Portland, Maine. Given a quick rundown of Portland, Maine, it's one of the bigger cities in Maine. Definitely a hub of commerce and transportation. It has the largest harbor in Maine. It has the largest metropolitan area in Maine. It's home to several famous Americans. Uh, Stephen King was born there. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow hails from there. There's a lot of history there. The city seal is actually a phoenix rising from the ashes because the city has been burned down four different times. Going back as early as King Philip's War in the 1600s, which if you're not familiar with that, it's not something that I'm going to go into here right now. But look into that, you history buffs out there. Atun Shea Films did a really good set on it. Really underappreciated time in, in American history. Now, switching over to Bellevue, Nebraska, it's about the opposite. It's pretty quiet. There's about 60,000 people that live out there. It's famous for having the Offutt Air Force Base, and that's actually where they built the planes that dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So the Enola Gay was actually constructed there. Other than that, this case is about as famous as it gets. Now, there is a personal hero of mine that hails from there. Her name is Molly Schulier, and she's a competitive eater. She set a lot of world records and, and whatnot, and I am a huge, huge fan of food. So nice. that's, that's those two cities rundown for us. So awesome. what happened up in Portland? So in Portland, Maine, on August 22nd, 1982, Richard Stetson, who went by Ricky, was 11 years old. At around 8 p.m., he went for a jog along a three-and-a-half-mile trail called Back Cove, which was something he did often before dinner. He did not return home by dark, so his parents reported him missing. Witnesses saw him jogging the path, followed closely by a young man on a bike. The next day, a motorist passing through Interstate 295 discovered his body. The attacker had attempted to undress him, then strangled, stabbed, and bit him. Police arrested a suspect. 24-year-old Joseph Anderson, but after a year and a half in custody, they released him due to his teeth not matching the bite mark. So the teeth not matching the bite mark, that's something that has to do with forensic dentistry. Now, forensic dentistry in the U.S. actually has a really, really long history. And I'm going to ask you, Rebel, can you guess what the first documented case of forensic dentistry being admitted in court is? Oh, I don't know. The Salem Witch Trials, actually. Oh. 
Wow. The Salem Witch Trials were the very first time in American history that forensic dentistry was admitted into trial. Back in 1692, Reverend George Burroughs was accused of witchcraft and conspiring with the devils and by biting his victims over and over again. So they used the bite marks that they saw on the victims who claimed that he had bitten them and they had him bite onto another object and they compared the two. And the judge said that, yes, this was absolutely okay, and we'll admit this in court. Not only did they admit this in court, but it was very, very important in the conviction of Reverend George Burroughs. He was hanged. And about two decades later, the state did exonerate him. There actually wasn't evidence that supported his conviction. So his children were compensated for it. Bite mark analysis. Oh, yeah. I didn't have a dad growing up, but at least we're, we're compensated somewhat. Now, bite mark analysis has been criticized a lot. They have the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology actually has identified that bite mark analysis is an area that lacks clear standards in regards to the features that you need to identify a particular set. And the reasons they say these are, are threefold. One is that basically human bite patterns are not specific to an individual multiple individuals can have what look like the same bite pattern. Um, Also, they are not usually accurately transferred onto human skin consistently. A lot of things can have an effect on that, whether the victim's moving, the composition of fat to muscle in the the bite area. And it also has not been shown that defining characteristics of those patterns can be accurately analyzed to exclude or not exclude individuals of a bite mark. It's not like fingerprints where you can tell. So then the American Board of Forensic Odontology actually found a 63% rate of false identifications in 1999. However, that study was based on an informal workshop that they were conducting, so it's not really considered a valid scientific setting. But in 2016, the Texas uh, Forensic Science Commission recommended that bite mark evidence not be used in criminal prosecution until they could figure out a more scientific basis for it. However, it is still being used today. Critics of it point to a really, really famous case of a guy named Ray Crone, who was labeled the Snaggletooth Killer. And he spent 10 years in prison, including two on death row, after being found guilty of killing a bartender in Phoenix, Arizona. It was Kim O'Connor. She was 35 years old at the time, and she was found dead at a bar he used to go to. Later, they used DNA analysis of the saliva in the bite marks, and they actually matched somebody else. Oh, um, yeah, the exact same thing happened to a in, to a, a gentleman named Roy Brown, who they thought that he had bitten this woman on the breast, and then they found out, and he was convicted, and then later, through DNA analysis, they found out, oh, never mind, it's not him. So, wow. the idea of forensic dentistry, I mean, it's always good to to have as much evidence as you can, but it's definitely something that, for me personally, I would take with a grain of salt. Yeah, definitely. So that's what happened in Portland. What happened in Bellevue? So in Bellevue, Nebraska, Danny Joe Eberly was delivering newspapers. He was 13 years old when he disappeared on September 18th, 1983. 
His brother had also been delivering papers but did not see him. He did, however, remember being followed by a white man in a tan car on previous days. On the day of his disappearance, Danny Joe had delivered three papers out of 70 on his route. The fourth house, the bicycle he was riding, and the rest of the newspapers were discovered. There was no sign of a struggle, but he loved his bicycle and would not have abandoned it. People searched for three days and discovered his body in a high patch of grass on a gravel road about four miles from his bicycle. He had been stripped to his underwear and his mouth had been taped with surgical tape. He'd been stabbed nine times and knife wounds across his body showed evidence that he'd been tortured. He'd been bound with an unusual rope. The FBI was called in and it took the jurisdiction of the case as it had begun as a kidnapping. They developed a profile and followed several leads. They arrested a young man who'd molested two boys about a week after Danny Joe's murder, and despite providing a false alibi and failing a polygraph test, he did not fit the profile and was released for lack of evidence. Other pedophiles in the area were questioned, but the case became cold. About three miles from where Danny Joe's body was found, Christopher Walden disappeared about eight blocks from his home. It was December 2nd, 1983, and he was 12 years old walking to school in the morning. Again, witnesses saw a white man in a tan car. Christopher was stripped to his underwear and nearly decapitated. He had not been bound this time, and his body had been better concealed. He was thought to have been killed immediately after the kidnapping. He had similar cut wounds on the abdomen to both Ricky and Danny Joe. Police created a composite drawing of the man witnesses had seen in the area and of the kidnappings. The profiler stated that they were seeking a man of slight build who was inexperienced at killing. He also stated that the suspect would likely become involved in some sort of youth activity, baseball or football coach or Boy Scouts. So composite drawings or facial composites, they've been used since time immemorial really to get an idea of what a suspect looks like. We started off with with hand drawings, which are still used today. I mean, the composite sketch of D.B. Cooper, who hijacked the airplane in 1971, I, people see it still all the time. Mm-hmm. But then they went on. It's definitely improved over the years. Now they use, well, they went then to feature-based selection, which they would have in a computer database, a thousand noses, a thousand ears, and they would have witnesses describe them and then put it together. But then they went even further with the Welker facial reconstruction which was used to determine the depth of human facial tissue. And that's been pretty massive game changer. Then they went to the evolutionary systems, which is what you see when they try to recreate like the facial structures of Cleopatra or Julius Caesar, stuff like that. But it's also used by police to really just bring out the defining characteristics of, of a person's face. I mean, because all faces, you know, you got two eyes, a nose, a mouth, some ears and whatnot. So the more detailed you can get, the better. They use them a lot of times like for wanted posters or for additional evidence against suspects, checking leads or warning a vulnerable population against serial offenders. But one of the most famous composite drawings that actually helped catch somebody was Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber. So. Right. That was not even that long ago. So these these types of investigational tools are still being used today. And that's, I would say it's a bit sketchy as well. Pardon the pun. Because you're relying on, on several different witnesses. And I've seen several times where in a in a random setting, 
they'll have something happen and they'll call four separate witnesses to do a composite drawing and none of them look alike. So right. I think the I, best uh, thing there is just to try and maybe figure out the similarities between the drawings, but it's so hard. Right. I took a self-defense class when I was younger and the, the first day of class, we were in a classroom and there was the instructor and then there was another person that was her assistant. Mm -hmm. And about midway through the class, the assistant got up and took the instructor's jacket off of their chair and walked out the door. And moments later, the instructor asked us to describe who it was that had just taken the jacket. And you'd be surprised at the number of people who thought it was a man, who thought it was a woman, different features. Nobody seemed to get it right, including myself. That And isn't that crazy? I, yes. It's also speaks to the fallacy of human memory. Yeah, like, exactly. Like they say that you only remember something once and after that you're remembering the memory of the memory. Right, exactly. So yeah, that's again that's you're putting a lot of faith in a very potentially not reliable source, so to say. Right. So did the police come up with anything else? Yes. So the police also talked to a woman who was walking her dog near the intersection where Christopher was abducted. She thought she had maybe seen the abduction, but wasn't actually sure. So police asked her to undergo hypnosis. Though this type of revelation is usually not admissible in court. She did recall that she saw Christopher with a man in a brown car with a license plate that started with the letter R. So, wow, I'm having a real field day with these ones today. So this is called forensic hypnosis. And oftentimes it's not admissible. Sometimes it is. They actually have a manual and a criminal code dealing with this in particular, where they encourage law enforcement to use it, but to not rely on it because it's not reliable. And this was really, really demonstrated around this time. In the 1980s and 90s in the U.S., we had a thing called the memory wars. Not sure if you're familiar with that or not. but what it was, was we saw a major increase in the use of forensic hypnosis in courts. And young adults in the 80s, often ones that used hypnotic therapy services, they suddenly began recalling memories of childhood sexual abuse, satanic ritual abuse, alien abductions. And it was a massive, massive spike. And so the spike in appearance of these, often false memories has been attributed to like popular culture and practitioner supported belief that hypnosis could reveal these traumatic memories buried in your mind. So oh, a network wow. of therapists and support groups, they developed around this trend in the 1980s. And one of the greatest contributors to this trend was that of the job of therapists is to comfort their patients and to encourage them to confront their abusers. However, this also doesn't really allow for a lot of fact checking or evidence and courts require evidence. So there was a, a very famous case called Borowick versus Shea in 95, where Borowick accused her aunt of multiple instances of childhood sexual assault after recalling the incidents months after undergoing hypnotic age regression. Now, there was a, the hypnotist that was practicing this was in California and they weren't licensed. They weren't a psychologist. They didn't have a medical degree and the court determined that the hypnotic testimony was not admissible and there were no other corroborating evidence to support these memories. 
And so as a result, there was a foundation created called the False Memory Syndrome Foundation. And it's to support parents and other family members who were accused of childhood abuse based on these false memories or false repressed memories. The other thing I will say on that, though, is I do believe that if someone is suffering from these false repressed memories, that they are also supported and given counseling and whatnot, because whether or not the event is real, the mind is an incredible thing. And if it has convinced itself of this trauma, then that trauma is real to that person. So while they may not have actually been subjected to this abuse, they are going to be dealing with the consequences of as if someone had done this to them. So it's very, very important to be very careful with the forensic hypnosis. And law enforcement knows that. They always seem to be looking for corroborating evidence with it, but using it as a baseline. Were there any other witnesses or any other people that came forward? Yes. So Barbara Weaver, who worked in a daycare center, noticed a strange car in the parking lot on January 11, 1984. The driver looked similar to the composite drawing. As she was writing down the license plate number, the man ran inside, wielding a knife, threatening to kill her. She ran past him and was able to run next door, which was the home of a pastor of a church, and was able to call the police. From there, police were able to track the vehicle down to a 19-year-old man who was enlisted in the Offutt Air Force Base, John Jubert. He was a maintenance mechanic in the radar unit. He was also an Eagle Scout and an assistant scout leader for a local troop. Jubert denied having anything to do with the murders in Nebraska, but interestingly, he had lived in Portland, Maine the year before Ricky's murder. He also fit the profile that the FBI had built. In the floorboard of Jubert's car, investigators found a hair that microscopically matched that of Danny Joe. Police also found a knife, roll of tape, and a piece of rope that was similar to that used to bind Danny Joe. Forensic testing on the unusual rope determined that them to be an exact match. So that's that strange rope that you were mentioning earlier when the boy was bound and gagged and found in the tall grass, correct? That's correct, yes. I wasn't able to find anything on it, but do you know what was so unusual about this rope? Yeah, there was several hundred strands of different colored rope that was inside of a basic white rope. But there was so many of them that they were that it made it unusual. I found ah, this okay. by listening to the forensic files episode um, that oh. aired. It was season four, episode seven, the ties that bind. Aptly named. Yes. Was well named. Yeah, yes. I I did. I, I wasn't sure about it, and it struck me as as interesting because now we're getting actual real physical forensic evidence that can match these right. things we're, we're not looking at you know forensic hypnosis we're not looking at at possible bite marks or or sketches like these are these are the kinds of evidence that juries want to hear that judges want to hear because they don't have to make rulings on it right. this is a knife this is tape this is some pretty weird rope and on we go so yeah, exactly. when the police brought all this up to Jubert, did that change him at all? Yeah. So when he was confronted with the evidence against him, Jubert confessed, stating, let me tell you about the second boy first, because it's fresher in my mind. 
He admitted to stabbing a nine-year-old girl with a sharp pencil in 1979. He told investigators he had also been known as the Oakdale Slasher, who in 1980 had slashed a nine-year-old girl and a female teacher in her mid-20s. It is not known what drove Dubert to harm or murder people. He was born July 2, 1963 in Lawrence, Massachusetts, and was an only child. There was some trauma to his upbringing. It is said that he witnessed his father strangling his mother. His parents divorced when he was six, and he was not allowed to visit his father. His mother moved them to Portland, Maine in 1974. Dubert had an above-average IQ of 123 and excelled in classes but struggled with social norms. He joined the Boy Scouts, where he earned many medals and became an Eagle Scout. He graduated from Chevrolet High School in 1981, just one year before the death of Ricky. This guy was a Boy Scout. He was an Eagle Scout. He was an assistant scout master in Nebraska as well. He was an Air Force enlisted man. He was an airman. This is the kind of guy that that you would trust. Like this, right. this, this is this seems to be a, an upstanding individual by all outward appearances. Yeah, he's a bit socially awkward, but a lot of us are. Like that's not being socially awkward is not enough to put him on my radar of this guy is going to do something crazy. Right. He's a smart guy, not to praise a monster, but IQ wise, he was smart. He did mm-hmm. well in his classes and the Eagle Scouts, like in the U S for our international listeners, the boy Scouts of America are a group that take boys and they, they teach them how to basically survive in the wilderness they also teach them about service to their community, you know, obeying the law, those types of things. Those those things are very, very important to the Boy Scouts of America. And after you have been in the Boy Scouts of America for a while and you have earned 21 badges, 14 of which are absolutely mandatory, and you demonstrate scout spirit, an ideal that's based on the scout's oath and law, service and leadership, which does include an extensive service project. Like you have to organize a community cleanup or something that gives back to your community. Then all of that is sent into the Boy Scouts of America and they review it and they decide if you are worthy to become an Eagle Scout or not. If you are, then you're presented with a medal and a badge that recognizes your accomplishments. And it's, it's definitely something people put it on their resumes only 4% of scouts earn it. Wow. And it's a very lengthy process. It sounds so like it. It's, again, it, it's definitely something that you have to put effort into and, and work. It's, again, it's just so, it sets me off so much that, that this could have been the person that, like, this is the guy next door that you'd ask for help. Like, and hey. he's doing these these horrible things. Exactly. But I digress. So mm-hmm. he, he confessed, I assume. Yes. So, yeah. So after the confession, Hubert was charged on January 12th, 1984. Initially, he pled not guilty, but then he changed his plea to guilty. Hubert underwent several psychiatric evaluations with one characterizing him as having schizoid personality disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder and sadistic tendencies. However, he was found to not have been psychotic at the time of the crimes panel of three judges sentenced him to death for the Nebraska murders of Danny Joe and Christopher. 
1990, Jubert was sentenced to life imprisonment for the main murder of Rick after matching the teeth marks to him. Maine did not have a death penalty. In 1995, Jubert filed a writ of habeas corpus to the United States District Court for the District of Nebraska over the death sentences, arguing that the aggravating factor of exceptional depravity was unconstitutionally vague. The statute reads, the murder was, ex as it was especially heinous, atrocious, cruel, or manifested exceptional depravity by ordinary standards of morality and intelligence. All right, so again, for our international audience, Habeas corpus is, it, it, it's Latin, the literal translation that you have the body, but the meaning of it is pretty much show me the body, right? So what they use it for, or what he is specifically using it for, is to bring a prisoner to court or out of detention to determine whether the detention itself is lawful or not. So his argument here is basically that saying that what he did was exceptionally depraved isn't well enough defined. He's not saying he didn't do this. He's saying that the description of what he did isn't fair to himself, more or less. So right. habeas corpus so is a great tool to be used in the correct circumstances. If someone is being held for an indeterminate period of time wrongfully it is that's what it's there for it's to be used and it has its origins going all the way back to like medieval england and catalonia but in the u.s it's definitely something that's very important given how rough our legal system can be and how mm -hmm. people can be imprisoned wrongfully for long periods of time so it's definitely a good tool but he is abusing the heck out of it right now Yes. So what did the courts think about this? The district court agreed, but the state of Nebraska appealed it to the United States Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit, who overturned it, saying that he had shown sadistic behavior by torturing Danny, Joe, and Christopher. During a prison interview, the interviewer asked Jubert, do you know why you killed those boys? He replied simply with, I do not. Jubert expressed some remorse for his actions, stating, I hate what I did. I'm disgusted with what I did. He also spoke on the death sentence before it was handed out. I don't think anyone deserves to die. The death penalty is not being administered fairly, and it doesn't deter anybody. On July 17, 1996, Jubert was executed by electric terror by the state of Nebraska. He was the second person to be executed in Nebraska since the reintroduction of the death penalty in 1973. For his last meal, he had pizza with green peppers and onions, strawberry cheesecake, and black coffee. So you bring up the, the last meal, his final meal, mm -hmm. which has, ironically enough, this is not simply an American thing. We have records going back in Europe at least to 1772. In Germany, there was a woman that was sentenced to death, and what she actually had for her final meal, what she requested, was a glass of water. Now, she was offered a massive feast. <laughs> there were three pounds of bratwurst, 10 pounds of beef, six pounds of baked carp, 12 pounds of lamb roast, soup, cabbage, bread, an unspecified dessert, and eight liters of wine. Oh, wow. She, she rejected it, and so the city officials ate it for her to be kind, I suppose. Mm 
Mm-hmm. But for me, one of the most interesting things about it, like I do understand the idea of the last meal. I have really no issue with that whatsoever. Texas, however, does. And prior to 2011, they did allow prisoners to request a last meal. And it was usually given. So this man, Coy Wayne Westbrook, he asked for a baked chicken, mashed potatoes, country gravy, green beans, sliced bread, and mandarin orange cake with choice of water, tea, or punch to drink. However, when it was given to him, he refused the meal. So after that, Texas stopped offering last meals. They get whatever the cafeteria served that day. Other states have monetary limits or certain dietary limits that they will or won't do. But I do feel, even though these people are on death row, oftentimes for a reason, sometimes, yes, they are. They are falsely accused. But I think that giving them this last thing it's it's a sign of of good faith from from that system. In Louisiana, it's actually very common for the warden to sit with the prisoner for his last meal. And oh, wow. sometimes, yeah, and sometimes they've been there have been requests to share a meal with another prisoner or to have the meal that they ordered distributed amongst the prisoners. So, I mean, it's it's an interesting custom, but it's definitely been around for quite a while. We see it in Europe, Asia, you know, Canada, the U.S. We all have it pretty well, but yeah, that's it's 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 got an interesting history. That might be something to talk about at some other time. But did he make any final statements or anything he like did. that? He did. Yes. Okay. Yep. So before his execution, Jubert made a final statement in which he apologized for the murders, saying, "I just want to say that again. I'm sorry for what I've done. I do not know if my death will change anything or if it will bring anyone peace." And I just ask that the families of Danny Everly and Christopher Walden and Richard Stetson to please try to find some peace and ask the people of Nebraska to forgive me. That's all. After the execution, there was an appeal to the Nebraska Supreme Court on whether the electric chair was cruel and unusual punishment. Dubert had four inch blisters on the top of his head and blistering on both sides of his head above his ears. So this has been a really large discussion in several states in the U.S., which still have the electric chair as an option. Famously, in 2021, South Carolina's governor, Henry McMaster, he passed a law forcing inmates to accept execution by electrocution if lethal injection was not available. Ironically enough, in Nebraska, the Nebraska Supreme Court in 2008 declared that execution by electric chair was cruel and unusual punishment and therefore was prohibited by the Nebraska Constitution. So there is definitely a move away from it. And we were already starting to see that as lethal injection really does seem to take the place of the gas chamber, the electric chair hanging, the firing squads trying to make a comeback. But lethal injection seems to be the road we're taking. And to be fair, 
it's been stated that even if an inmate survives only 15 or 30 seconds, they would suffer the experience of actually being burned alive. And oh. that is a punishment that has long been recognized as cruel and unusual. So right. while I do believe that if you are to implement this system, I believe that you should do it as humanely as possible. It's right. it's part of their their constant. Th this is speaking to those cases in the U.S. where they have a constitutional guarantee against cruel and unusual punishment. That's the current status of it. It's as you you just read to us. He had four inch blisterings on the top of his head and the side uh, and both sides of his head above his ears. So, right. I'm I'm sure he suffered, probably not as much as his victims did, mm -hmm. but the world is a little bit safer with a confessed murderer and child murderer, no less, no longer with us. Right. So I think that brings us now into our missing persons case of the week. Yes. So today we're going to look at the case of Deandra LaKelsha Ford. She was last seen September 21st, 2023, near the 11900 block of East Freeway in Houston, Texas. She was last seen getting into a white van with an unidentified man outside of Diva's Bikini Sports Bar, where she had only worked for a few weeks. Deandra is a black woman with brown eyes and black hair. She is 5'4 and weighs around 170 pounds. She was last seen wearing black top and tan pants, and she is a mother to a four-year-old son. Interestingly, Deandra was listed as a witness in a capital murder case in the spring of 2023. On the day of the killing, around 4.30 a.m., she was sleeping in the front passenger seat of a car driven by Otis Parker when she said she heard gunshots as the vehicle pulled into a southeast Houston apartment complex. Deandra and Quitiana Taylor had just returned from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where they had worked as dancers for about a week. 35-year-old Otis Parker, the driver, was fatally shot, and Deandra was barely missed but managed to escape out the back passenger door. The suspects outlined in a probable cause affidavit are 22-year-old Gerald Trayvon Wheeler and 21-year-old Jamal Brown listed as the shooter, and accomplices 23-year-old Mariah Green and 21-year-old Quitiana Taylor. They plan to rob and kill Otis and Deandra over $1,500 cash, and there have been documented threats to Deandra's life. So one of the accomplices is one of the is the friend that she just returned with from Louisiana, from Baton Rouge. Yes. Oh wow! Yeah. In a text message exchange, Brown wrote, "She got to go too." Haley responded, "I'm already knowing." Harris County Sheriff's Office deputies attempted to serve Brown with a murder warrant and ended up fatally shooting him on July 12, 2023. The three remaining defendants serrated without bond. In bond documents on June 30th, 2023, a judge issued a no-contact order between the defendants and Deandra. Taylor's court-appointed attorneys, Angelo Welton and James Stafford, would not specifically comment on the case, but did provide the following statement. Women barely more than children, such as our client, who are being sex trafficked in Houston and New Orleans, are often treated as less than human. They are stripped of their possessions, their freedom, and their rights to their own bodies. Our hearts go out to all the human trafficking victims who have been used, abused, and discarded. So she was witness to the shooting of their driver, Otis Parker. Correct. And all the other suspects are currently 
either held or killed in the police shootout. Yes. So really she's they need her for you know her her witness testimony and also to yes, understand that she is she's safe. I mean this is a dangerous situation for anybody. Mhm. So if people have yeah. seen her or know anything about her, who should they get in contact with? Anyone with information about her whereabouts is asked to contact the police or the Texas Center for the Missing or Houston Police Department at 832-394-1840. Wow, this, both of these cases were just really, really dark. I, I really feel for Deandra on this. That she, she was betrayed mm-hmm. really by her friend who she was trying to work with. And I do understand. Yeah. I do understand her friend's attorney speaking out against human trafficking, how these women are being exploited. Going along Absolutely. with that, that is horrible and horrendous. She knows that her her friend was going through this as well. So mm. the the case is still ongoing. So I'll reserve judgment on it for too much. But if you know. Or you suspect that someone is is being put in these situations? Reach out, say something. This yes. this is a horrible epidemic worldwide that we're seeing, and it's something that if everybody takes a moment and 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 looks a little bit deeper, I'm not saying that it can be stopped, but if you help one person, that's a big big difference. Yeah, exactly. Well, Rebel, this was this was an episode. Yes, it was. So we're looking forward to next week. Where can our listeners find us if they're wanting to let their friends know about the most awesome true crime podcast that's hitting the airwaves nowadays? So they can find us on all social media under Murderosity or Murderosity Podcast. They can find us on Podbean, and that distributes to most of the major different places where you can listen. And you can always email us cases or if you have missing persons or murder cases or anything cre- creepy or weird, uh, you can email us at murderosity at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear from you all. We Yes. While we have our own ideas, we want to know what you want to hear. And we'd also love to hear your opinions on what you've heard so far. So don't hesitate to reach out. Like they said, we're on all the social media platforms and we do check them daily. So Please, please reach out. We want to hear from you. Yes, definitely. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for us today. What do you think, Rebel? Yes, I think so. All righty. Well, you all stay safe out there and we'll see you next week.